Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Uh, today, we have a very interesting episode. Uh, two people we've had on already, Gregory Landua and The Last Farm. And the reason I wanted to get them both on together is that I think they both present very compelling visions of how to move towards an ecological civilization, but they're quite different. And I, I suspect that there's a lot of disagreement and perhaps some unexpected agreement. And so we're here today to kind of hash that out. Uh, I don't want to just try and describe their worldviews. I'm, I'm going to let them do that for themselves. I also want to give a shout out to AC, Anarcho Contrarian. I think he actually had the initial idea for this podcast with him included. He wasn't able to make it. Um, but I think um, that uh, we still have plenty of, of grist for a great discussion here. Um, so without further ado, uh, I want to give each uh, of you guys a chance, five to ten minutes, to to basically make your pitch. And this includes some relevant backgrounds about how your thinking developed, uh, core premises, uh, theories of change, and, and what you see, how we move towards an ecological uh, happy, equitable civilization. So who wants to go first? <laughs> well, first, I would propose that we do this bracket style. So the winner of this debate goes on to debate anarcho-contrary. Oh, interesting. interesting. Uh, and we, yeah. we decide the winner via Twitter poll. That's my pitch. That's well, we can talk about that. We can we can talk about that. <laughs> um, just, just some, some background. So I just want to maybe just to kind of give a little more context for this discussion. So broadly, last farm, you represent eco-socialism. Gregory, you represent regen. And Anarcho represented localism and or distributism uh, and or just less scale in general. And so it was going to be kind of three different, pretty distinct worldviews kind of in conversation. Um, we were kind of worried that it would kind of make the conversation more complicated. And so it was kind of a, a trade-off. And so, yeah, it, it would have been interesting to have him on, but at the same time, I think this is interesting as well. Um, so yeah, who wants to go first? And then and then I'll have each of you respond to the other, and then maybe we can go from there. I don't like Greg to go first <laughs> because your la your episode was two hours and 20 minutes long. And I will be honest with you, I did not get a hundred percent of it. So I could use a refresher. Greg, your name is last. So, uh, you know, um, <laughs> I'm just going to warn that if we do a Twitter poll, the capitalist is always going to win. So we should probably find something more fair because um, <laughs> That's I'll, just true. Pay, I'll just pay i'll just create some bots and you know it'll be over that's true <laughs> i'm just i'm being facetious but um okay let's see so I, I let's get into it so um a pitch oh gosh um well so i'll sort of um I mean, maybe I'll start with some disclaimers and some some you know just sort of origin of the origin of thinking um so the disclaimers are, I am heavily involved with, um, I guess you could say, 
experiments in cooperative, um, I don't know, post-capitalist structures within the existing framework that we have, meaning I participate in, you know, several different groups in which power is not allowed to equate to um, monetary holdings or be represented in in such a way or that we've taken land off of markets. Um, I've participated in a bunch of different efforts to decommodify products from landscapes um, while also building businesses. That is to say, while maintaining a flow of goods and services enough to support different people's vocations, you know, support people to, um, yeah, engage with a, a healthy, thriving life, but I'll do so in a way that is sort of shifting market dynamics and evol evolving market dynamics. So I am not by any means, I guess, a um, libertarian capitalist <laughs> or anarcho-capitalist by any stretch of the imagination. However, I do think that if you trace, even, even thinking back into history and prehistory um, markets and, and, and some way of, of uh, symbolizing exchange value has always existed and needs to continue to exist. And that my primary focus is on this sort of like, challenging um conundrum about the translation between fungibility and non-fungibility or exchangeability and non-exchangeability which i think really gets down to the core of sort of social governance issues and how you know how to do that in how to create rules, incentives, and structures at a societal level, at a business level, at a local level, that, you know, from my perspective, are all pointing towards repair, regeneration, stewardship of the commons, of our, of the environment, of the ecosystem that we're all embedded in. So my background and my bias um, I mean, gosh, I, I, I will say I'm super skeptical of radical politics as a medium of social transformation, but I'm not so skeptical as to think that it's, you know, um, like it doesn't bother me if other people are engaged with it. I do think that there are some, you know, my skepticism about radical politics is, um, that, it tends, I believe, that it tends to uh, polarize and simplify issues in order to build sort of um, popular will and popular agency in a way that actually really undermines decision making and makes positive results very challenging. Um, I think that business also has that tendency right? Either direction, I, I sort of like, in either direction, we have this challenge, which is that when you oversimplify something, whether you're oversimplifying something for its uh, symbolic exchange value, as we do 
with, you know, sort of Marx's commodity theory of money, which side note is wrong, but we can get into that later. Um, however, it is very true that markets tend, anytime you're creating an exchangeable asset, you're, you're going to be sort of flattening it and oversimplifying it. That part's not wrong. Um, and I th think that radical politics, any political movement tends to do the same when you scale something and you're trying to sort of create a mimetic complex and force it through the political apparatus, you tend to create dogma, fundamentalism, and you tend to flatten complexity in a way that's very dangerous. So, um, so in that way, I may be very, um, you know, I guess sympathetic and resonant with maybe some of the things that anarcho contrarian or Jason or other folks in the Doomer optimism community would would be saying. So I sort of see things as we have some very challenging issues and, and problems that historically we've yet to really figure out. So I guess there I'm outing myself as I'm not a traditionalist in that sense. <laughs> I don't think we can just like you know, react and go sprinting back into some perfect, uh, <laughs> you know, utopian um, tradition setting and that that'll solve everything. I think we we do have some really big issues to solve. And I I feel like in our cultural context, at least in the West, the, the, cr the crux of the problem is trying to solve this really complex issue of the translation between intrinsic, non-fungible, unique, um, relational value and um, exchangeable value and doing so in a way that is not coercive or violent, doing so in a way that, um, you know, sort of patterns those processes where we're, which ultimately are agreements between counterparties um, doing that in the best possible way to align all of the parties with the underlying um, intrinsic relational value that, that everybody relies on, which again, from my perspective, is um, ecological health, environmental integrity, um, and regeneration. And so in that's been a long, I guess I've been grappling with that kind of core Gordian knot, if you will, um, exploring it, thinking about it, um, making experiments in in my life and vocation uh, for a long time. So I'm not an academic, but more of a folk economist, if anything. And, you know, I like to try, I'd like to do things. So I've become an entrepreneur, I've become, um, I, I've sort of been attracted to the to the sort of like the living thriving edge of where the conversation is and trying to engage with that in a meaningful, productive, ethical way. Um, some of the outputs of that that people may or may not be familiar with are the eight forms of capital framework in which we were trying to do two things. First off, we were trying to provoke people who had kind of like a monoculture perspective about financial capital and exchange value being the only form of value that's worth thinking about. We very clearly, as we're laying out that framework, talk about how living capital and social capital, cultural capital actually, you know, in, in a lot of ways, don't follow any kind of logic that could, you know, equate it to how people think about financial capital maybe capital, we're even provoking, we're also trying to provoke in that framework, what we saw as 
kind of close-minded, um, I guess, reactionary thinking from the left in which just sort of like money and business is just bad, right? And we're trying to say like, hey, you know, you're if, if we're going to aggregate people together into cooperative enterprises that engage with something that they find important, in our case, you know, the whole framing of the book that we were extrapolating that that framework in regenerative enterprise is about um, businesses, non for profits, um, cooperatives, whatever the org structure that you choose, devoted to agroecological regeneration. Like that was that's the context we're thinking of and exploring and experimenting in, right? Is how do you create the right vehicle for groups of people to organize themselves? Um, regenerate soil, uh, preserve biodiversity, uh, you know, increase or steward water quality and do so in a way that allows people to make a living in the present moment and to increase the agency that, that, that groups of people who are successful at, at doing that, um, can exercise in the world. And, the last thing I'll say before I sort of take a pause and sorry, this has been, I think, kind of a, a mess. I did, certainly didn't formally um, think through presenting my stance as a pitch. But the last thing I'll say is I, I believe that it kind of, you know, th there's cultural facets to this. There's social or economic legal facets to this as there are material, environmental and sort of biophysical facets to this the on the cultural side of things i do have a belief that a lot of the challenge that we face in the world today boils down to how our society generates status um, especially for young men i think although i also think that it, it's not really gendered but i think it sort of balances towards you know the, the masculine um formation of ego, <laughs> whether that's in male or female bodied individuals, tends to lead people to try to, to sort of like fight for status within whatever game is being played at a societal level. And the current game that we're playing has to do with the accumulation of, of wealth, of fully fungible, um, monetary value that is predominantly generated through extraction and degeneration the liquidation of of living capital social capital cultural capital spiritual capital into financial capital so the current game that people derive status from is coming from that this is kind of how i frame things in in the way that i think about things for a while now maybe for more than a decade i've been thinking this way and if we can shift that, if we can shift that, you know, young men and generations in the future are actually that there's a healthy way for them to compete for status. That is to say that the outcome of their competition is ecological regeneration, is deeper soils, is more beauty and life in the world. If that's what we can reward our you know, our sort of hero's journey, the quest that everyone is born into. And, you know, if you're coming from it from sort of, you know, the worldview that I'm coming from, people are try are, you know, born into the world, and they're trying to 
you know, establish themselves, I guess. And we go on these journeys and we try to win. And we, and if that can be sort of held in a way that 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 there's a healthy outcome, that the exhaust from those individual journeys and from our collective economy is ecological regeneration, then we're on the right track. And so my journey and my experiments and my attempts have all very much been in sort of practical, pragmatic um, organizations that are doing that, that are making attempts at doing that. And I have not really been involved uh, on the political side of things like engaging with politics as a theory of change. So, you know, much more so on the, I guess, entrepreneurial side of things. Um, so I'll pause there, see if there's clarifying questions, and then we can, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to to hear Last Farm's um, sort of perspective, and then we can go from there. All right, well, um, great, thanks, thanks Gregory. Uh, Last Farm, that, that was 13 minutes, so if you want to take up to 13 minutes, uh, nobody can, can fault you for that. I just want to say that we're going to, you, you already proposed one of these uh, status-seeking games with, you know, having a Twitter poll, and so it seems like you guys are already aligned. Um, and so we can just end the conversation right here. Uh, well, in the interest of, of entertaining our audience, I think I'll, I'll do battle anyway. Um, cool. Thanks for that, Greg. Uh, I, I think the best way to clarify that going forward is just to, to start the discussion rather than asking specific questions. There was a lot there. Um, my elevator pitch is this, uh, we should extend democracy to the economy. That's the whole pitch. So the idea is that we take for granted that democracy is the is the morally correct form of governance over our politics. And, and it makes no sense for us to have um, political democracy and economic authoritarianism. And that's what capitalism is. Uh, private ownership of the means of production gives absolute authority to capitalists to make decisions over our lives for us. Um, and that is not an appropriate system to have in a free world so we should extend deepen and extend our democracy to the economy obviously we don't have real democracy right now although we deserve to um, the state has been captured by capitalism um, so we need to extend democracy to our democracy as well we need to reclaim the state uh, from the plutocrats and make it a truly radical democracy of the people and we need to wield state power in the interests of the common people and we do that by um, by ending the capitalist state, uh, by building a state that is a true democracy, and by democratizing the economy. Uh, we take that then a step further to say the same thing should be true of our ecological resources, um, that that is the common heritage of all people, and that we deserve to have democratic control over those things, um, and that capitalists do not deserve to have authoritarian control over them. So that's my elevator pitch for eco-socialism. Uh, my theory of change, uh, which I believe I, I articulated on my last appearance here, uh, is that everything stays the same until we make it too costly. So our responsibility is to make the status quo costly if we wanna change it, and then to make the type of change we wanna make both attractive and practically feasible. And the way we do that is through a combination of collective militant action that exploits strategic locations in society, that wields governing power, and that uses technocratic know-how to implement uh, our alternative. 
So that to me is what I would call doing politics. Um, it's seeking to uh, seize and wield power in the in our own interests, and that's the way I would describe the way to do it successfully, the way to win at it. Um, so those are kind of my that's my pitch basically, is that we we democratize our economy and and reclaim our state uh, through the effective exercise of demo, low not capitalized d democratic politics. Can I, can I ask um, you a couple of questions? Sure. How old are you? <laughs> I'm going to leave out any personal information. What generation are you in? Uh, I am on the, I, I don't know exactly, but I'm on the cusp of millennial and Gen X, I guess, something like that. Okay. Um, that's helpful context. Um, so that all sounds lovely what what does it mean to seize power well and there there's some that's context dependent right so yeah it depends how power is currently wielded so in the united states we'd have a different power context than they would have in another country or different part of the world and so the path to seizing power here would would be it's just a practical question what's the best way uh, to have influence over state power. And here, there's obviously a lot of discussion around that about strategy and tactics and so on. I think the best and most viable way to do that is through electoral politics and pressure campaigns. So basically, movement politics and uh, getting yourself elected. That's what's called an inside-outside strategy. So you use internal power in order to wield the existing authority of the state and then you use movement politics to influence the exercise of power by the state. Can I ask one more clarifying question, Les Farm? You, you mentioned militant action. What do you mean by that? Militant action means um, that we do not limit ourselves to persuasion. Um, we are, are willing to make it impossible to practically exercise power uh, that is not in the interest of the common people. So, for instance, if those in authority want to poison the planet um, at the expense of everyone alive, we won't just say, well, we're going to make our case and, and uh, hopefully you know, they'll recognize that we're right. And if they don't, then at least we tried. We're, I don't think that that's an ethical approach to politics. You have to say, if the plutocrats want to poison the planet and humanity, we will do whatever it takes to stop them, whether that means, you know, voting or stopping traffic or more than that, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, and the same goes for the, you know, horrible material inequality that exploits the working class for the benefit of capitalists. All right. Gregory, any more clarifying questions before you, you uh, stage your response? Um. I, so many, I mean, I feel like I have a, I feel like I have a decently clear understanding. What I didn't, I guess, clarifying question, I think it would be helpful. You laid out kind of a coherent, um, you, you know, sort of like thesis there. Um, but I, I'd love a little bit of just like background on how has this, as your theory of change, as a, complex of beliefs about how to engage the world, how is this formed? What was the process whereby you decided this is the way? 
Sure. I mean, I discussed this a little bit on my episode, but I started my journey in politics, uh, I guess, in radical politics by going to Chiapas and working on a project there with the EZLNs, Zapatista communities there, and seeing their direct democracy in action. Um, and, and that was a deeply inspiring um, experience for me. And then was involved in, in activism and uh, organizing around ra- radical politics for the next decade or so. And really through the highs and lows of that, um, that really shaped my current perspective. So seeing the failure of um, the anti-globalization movement in the aftermath of 9-11, um, the failure of Occupy, uh, the failure of the squatting movement in Europe, there were so many different things kind of within the anarchist sphere of, of, the, um, of the radical left that were ambitious in create, trying to create the world that we all wanted to see and um, that did not work for a variety of reasons. And so analyzing those failures and then seeing some really dramatic successes, especially in the last 10 years, there was the unexpected uh, near success of the various Bernie Sanders campaigns. And then most recently, there's the Democratic Socialists of America who have successfully gotten 300 of their members elected to office in the United States, which was something that we previously thought would never happen. So the the calculus has changed dramatically from, you know, we can't engage with electoral politics here because it'll never work. They'll find a way to keep us out, yada, yada, to, oh, actually, it works really well. Um, and we make really effective change when we're able to do it. Um, that has definitely been a really eye-opening experience for me. But at the same time, that success has not just been on the back of traditional electoral politics. It's been a movement orientation to electoral politics. So it's taking the kind of mass struggle approach um, of anti-globalization movement, say, or, or uh, democratic unionism, those sorts of things, and applying that to the electoral projects. So it's not just about getting elected. It's about using electoral campaigns um, to, to make transformative change in communities. And that means that you win to an extent, whether you win or lose the election. And fortunately, that's led to a lot of wins in the elections themselves, but it's also led to a lot of infrastructure and organizing in communities, even where uh, the contest has been lost. So um, that's kind of how I've landed at where I am today. All right, Gregory, you want to you want, you want to respond, and then I'll I'll give the last farm a chance to also ask clarifying questions, and then also stage a, a response to Gregory's. Actually, I don't know who wants to go first here. Um, um, I mean, I sort of interrupted to ask a couple clarifying questions during some pregnant pauses there. So I don't feel like I need to do a response particularly. I'm just trying was just trying to draw out a little bit more context. Okay. Um, Last Farm, do you want to respond to, to Gregory's kind of intro, asking and clarifying questions and where you think that um, you know, you see shortcomings in his approach? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would be interested to hear. Um, I think there are a lot of places where it's it sounded like we agreed, but I'm interested to know how you respond to to my claim um, that private ownership of the means of production is a, is a non-democratic form of ownership, that it does not allow for um, the extension of democracy to the economy. It sounds like, on the one hand, you're very interested in democratic forms of enterprise, things like workers' cooperatives and so forth, but that you still envision private ownership of the means of production 
being a feature of your system, what, what I believe you called in the previous podcast, capitalism 2.0. So I'm wondering how you reconcile those two things. How do you prevent the concentrated power of capitalism, of the plutocrats, of the wealthy, from overtaking your project to, to create democratic forms of enterprise governance? Well, I sort of would take a step back and I would say the problem space here, I, I am not um, comfortable with a full the full state control over um, enterprise. Um, neither am I comfortable with the the status quo at the moment. Um, I think, you know, I, I tend to agree with the sort of sim simple, simplified version of, of reality in which we have a missing um, leg to the stool here. So at the moment, we have this polarity between private means of production or um, sort of corporatism and government. Um, in the past, there was the church or the commons, or maybe both at the same time, I, I tend to think that we we need to create a system of balances between these sort of competing spheres and kind of hold them in, in a bit of creative tension. I don't think just sort of like handing over control of the means of production to, in quotes, democracy <laughs> is likely to work. I think there's lots of examples of how poor that goes. I, I have appreciated that you've said, you know, the, the the big challenge for your vision, if I remember correctly, is, I guess, the capability and capacity of technocratic control over the the different facets of, of the economy and um, business. And I think I would agree with that. And I think that's the question is how do we create talented competent and um accountable leadership over these different spheres and i tend to be more of a fan of a heterogeneous experimentation approach because i don't know that i know the answer to that especially because i i feel like the world is very rapidly changing right now we're at a pretty intense inflection point in terms of where yeah, I, on multiple levels, technological, social, ecological, we're at a really intense inflection point. And so I tend to think that the right strategy here is going to be pluralistic and involve a lot of different experiments. So I certainly would be excited to see local governments, like I, I think you posted about uh, government and maybe it was in Arkansas, a municipal government that that took over the grocery function. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. Experiments like that are really fantastic at the local level. Um, and it's equally cool if a group of citizens decides to create, you know, a, a local worker co-op or, or different structures. There's lots of different structures. And I think prescribing a single sort of like leadership or governance approach is dangerous and premature, I guess. Can I can I do a follow up to last one's question, uh, Gregory? So, so you're saying so so are you saying that a proper system of checks and balances will prevent 
the accumulation of capital by capitalists, whatever, even if we're defining eight forms of capital, people still want to probably presumably accumulate it somehow uh, and, and thereby using that power to corrupt the governing process as well as we see today. Uh, There's, yeah, I guess I'm saying that. I guess I'm saying that, although, yes, sorry, there's a lot more there. I mean, it's a it's a great question. So I think I I also think it's very important that we understand, however, we use the framework, the the basic process of of translation between non fungible and fungible, um, non transferable and transferable, non exchangeable and exchangeable is the core of the economic conundrum. How do you unitize and quantify something? I think it's naive to think that you just shouldn't. And I totally agree with Last Farm. At the end of the day, I'm going to say, at the end of the day, I think we probably agree that sort of inserting um, humans into the loop where there is a governance feedback cycle around the ethical questions that arise in that process is important. And that's sort of a foundation of region network is the attempt there is to build, you know, although we're doing it outside of the state, we're trying to build community owned public infrastructure, where people can program in the equation for the translation between, in our case, living capital and financial capital, right? What are the rules? Is it exchangeable? Is it just a service contract? You know, you get to program these questions in. So instead of saying, oh, we have the answer, we're sort of saying what we need to do, I think there's, this sounds like a place of agreement, is to create tools whereby we can exercise governance. I, I hear and get nervous. And so, and you know, maybe this is where there's a tension or a, a disagreement. I am not super comfortable with sort of like seizing the means of production as a viable viable theory of change here. I I really think we need, I I believe that it is more, I guess, competitive to engage creative agency amongst people and, and grow a power base instead of seizing someone else's power base. And so I sort of, I guess I'm buying into the sort of like entrepreneurial sort of like capitalist story where I'm thinking, okay, you know, here's the rules of the game. Um, you know, I'm very comfortable with trying to like, great, let's build a coalition and take over the existing government and then start changing laws to to make them suck less or even be good. That'd be fantastic. And I will 100% admit that I think I, like many people of my generation, tended to shy away from politics actually sort of to my detriment and our detriment as a society you know like believing it's sort of like a self-perpetuating myth that the government is corrupt and politics sucks and so the only option that you have is you know to to build a business of change i (laughs) i don't believe that that's true i guess is what i'm saying however that's my my choice in the world has been to pursue that pathway like build business learn because like learn how to manage a business learn how to manage resources learn how to manage people within a set of ethical constraints learn how to build agency and engagement and democratic 
uh, processes to answer hard questions. Um, so I, I guess I, I sort of buy into that. I also see some of the downfalls, like when the rubber hits the road and you're dealing with complexity and you have a dearth of leadership or capacity, like sometimes pe somebody just has to step up and be accountable and be responsible and either, you know, you know, win in quotes or like lose and be responsible for the fact that something goes wrong. And I feel like there is an important, it's sort of like there's truth in everything. There is an important critique in that sort of small government, you know, libertarian critique of, of governmental institutions when it's unclear who's actually going to be accountable. And that is why governments in many cases have had challenges managing complex industry. However, I think it's also a trope and it's not like a universal truth. I'm not trying to sort of like, you know, brush away all the arguments there, but I think there's something there that's really important. Nice one. Well, it bring, touched on a lot of different points there. So I guess just to go through it one at a time, I mean, I'm struck by the point about if I'm understanding correctly, your goal is not to expropriate the wealth of the billionaire class, it's to outcompete them. Is that right? I'd say my goal is to have, is to invite them to invest their, their capital, which I believe has been generated by and large and this is where there's probably an ideological difference i don't think all capital i don't think it's i don't think you can say that all financial capital that exists in the control of um wealthy successful people in today's economy has been fully like garnered under unethical conditions i think it's a mix there are certain there's there's a lot of capital that has been exploitative and extractive and there's a lot that's been generative and there's it's complicated. So, yes, I am not comfortable with like expropriating that wealth and then presuming that I know how to allocate it better necessarily. I am more um, believe I believe that instead we need to prove out a model where that wealth can come home and like re that that capital can reinvest itself and then be controlled democratically in a living regenerative economic situation but that that there's like capacities capabilities and growth so it's sort of like making the the i guess eco-socialist vision investable is i guess in a way what i'm about hmm. so my response to that is is that it's impossible um that it is is the philosophical disagreements about the labor theory of value and whatever else aside it's just practically impossible because capital is only capable of seeking its highest return that is literally the only thing it can do it does not have morality or ethics or a conscience capitalism is an amoral system it does not have any values except for the maximization of profit so the idea that you'll get billionaires to voluntarily cede their wealth and power because they, they will see the wisdom of a regenerative economy to me is a fantasy and that is impossible to make that occur. It never has and never will. And so that, that is fundamentally at odds with, with capitalism. It, it will not allow for people to, to become enlightened and then give up their control over society. 
um, there is no way to do that other than to require it of them. And I, I, I understand that that makes some people uncomfortable, but the reality is, A, that money doesn't belong to the billionaire class. They stole that from working people. And I agree, that doesn't mean that every single thing that's been that's occurred under the capitalist economy is stolen wealth. But it does mean that the, the obscene concentration of power and wealth in the hands of the, of the oligarchs that, that run our society is stolen wealth that belongs to the working people who generated that value, not to them. And, you know, it, I could run through the stats, but I think we all instinctively look at things like the fact that the CEOs of large corporations are making 3000 times more than their lowest paid employee and think that that's, that's pretty sickening. That does not represent their actual value contribution to society. So, you know, absolutes aside, things are wildly out of whack. There's no way we're going to voluntarily convince these people to give up their, their wealth and power. The only way to do it is to democratically control the state and then to use that democratic power to take it back from the people who wrongfully took it in the first place. And I agree, it doesn't make you or me or any other individual better positioned to agree on the distribution of those assets. But the, the democratic authority of the people expressed through a democratic state, a truly democratic state, not like the one we have now, is positioned to do that better. Not just better practically, but better, better ethically. It is their moral right to decide on the distribution of, of our common resources. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of pieces here. So I'm just going to flag, I get very nervous when it's like, well, we don't have a state that is capable of doing this, but maybe we could in the future. So just flagging, that sounds like fantasy talk to me. Um, number two is there is something that we have control over, which is what profit means. So I don't, this is, this is um, a well, um, a commonly held belief that's not true, which is that capital like capital is a human construct. Capital doesn't exist outside of culture. Culture defines the rules of capital accumulation and profit. Um, that there's both legal sides elements of that and there's cultural elements of that. Um, so we actually have the ability to first design instruments that are investable that that generate new forms of return and those new forms of return must be bound they must be bound by true ecological and social health and and therefore they're going to look radically different and the rules of exchange are going to be radically different because that's what they need in order to actually succeed at say building soil health instead of um you know nutrient mining and um you know pumping nitrogen fertilizer and you know all of that all of the rest of that those if you believe that there is sort of like an abstract objective logic that capitalism follows um then i think we've already lost i don't think that that's true right this is there there's a it, it how capital accumulates value to itself is changes over time dependent on what society believes is valuable and there isn't 
you know, and, and this is probably this is this is where I have to part ways with the socialist sort of mantras and dogma and and where I started to kind of get fed up with Bernie Sanders. And, you know, I just don't have patience for it. it I, you know, billionaires are not just blood blood sucking vampires. Um, yes, it is 100 percent true that we should enact some simple things like having a wage. Um, you know, you only make some ratio above the lowest one. However, you're also seeing like, like billionaires aren't just making more salary. They have skin in the game in the form of stock. And lots of them have done, you know, gone above and beyond the risk that like, they've taken enormous risks. Now, is that like, are they being compensated too much? Maybe. Could it be ratcheted down? Probably. Um, but I I think it's just wildly, it's a story. It's a myth that all of that value is just built on the backs and extracting value from other people. That's not to say that there aren't significant issues and there shouldn't, things shouldn't get much better. But that's, I think, foggy thinking. And I think in order to have a real theory of change that's going to succeed, you can't alienate, you can't just sort of like say, the, the, the theory of change can't just be, okay, we're going to, you know, use demagoguery to gain control, and then we're going to ex expropriate all that wealth, and then we're going to do something smarter with it. That, that logical sequence, I don't think holds water. Let me jump in with a quick clarifying question, Gregory. So, so you mentioned, uh, you know, that we, you know, the kind of the social construction of of capital, and there can be different kind of cultural legal definitions of capital and and new forms of return. I assume that this applies to your eight forms of capital framework, where we would have new cultural and legal expectations of what we would, what kind of kinds of return we would want to maximize. But then, to last farmer's point. How would you institute those rules uh, that dictate these alternative definitions of capital and new forms of return without politics, without the state? It happens in several ways. I'm not saying that it happens without the state. I think it happens. It's, it has to be across state. Also, it has to inform cultural norms as well, which sort of exist with outside of legal or business constraints. But you already see this happening. You know, we can, um, again, there's lots of problems to point out. However, you see shareholders holding businesses responsible. And you see this whole movement called ESG, environmental, social and governance which has huge issues with it. It's <laughs> and it's enormously frustrating. It's also interesting and potentially very um I guess there's there's I have some cautious optimism about things like the ESG movement within the corporate sector because there's a voluntary there's there's an acknowledgement from leaders of companies and shareholders that the way that they're doing business is damaging ecological health and social integrity. And that therefore the cost of that damage should be internalized into 
the corporate decision making and the corporate balance sheet. So you already have this movement within that has nothing to do with the government. It has to do with corporate governance, right? And the way that and as as last far mentioned in the United States, we live in we live in a country in which democracy has been severely curtailed. There's re regulatory capture is a thing, right? Companies have um, bought power in in a variety of different ways and undermined the democratic um, expression of power uh, by and for the people. That's true, and that needs to change. Um, and however, even in that situation, ah, no, no howevers. So in the current world, like in the current way that the United States regulatory system works, essentially we could take um, ozone. The, the, if people remember back in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a hole in the ozone was found. It was actually found in the 70s. Um, it was found to be caused by CFCs. Um, a, a refrigerant that was primarily produced by Dow Chemical, um, if I'm not mistaken. The the story goes, the regulatory story goes that as soon as it became clear that that was true and that that was causing, you know, that there was irreparable damage being caused to the ozone layer to a, a commons. Dow Chemical, their first action was to muddy the waters by funding a bunch of science that said that it wasn't happening. And when they, as they were doing that, they then turned and spent billions of dollars to develop HFCs, which wouldn't degrade the ozone. But side note, they do other shitty things. Then once they developed it and they had competitive advantage, they went back and they pushed regulation to ban CFCs. I tell that story because it's important to understand sort of like the way that regula regulations work currently in this moment. And I think Last Farm and I would be totally in agreement that that's fucked up and it should change and we should build a political movement to change it. Totally on board with that. As it currently exists, that's how things work. So what you have right now, for better or worse, is a bunch of corporations who have been fogging the waters around environmental degradation and climate change for years while they establish footing for a regenerative sort of economy. Carbon drawdown, biodiversity, 30 by 30, all of these different things. What's happening right now is they're starting to turn their attention back towards the regulatory environment. And while they're building up this new economy of these assets, they're going to be also engaging in the regulatory world because they will have a competitive advantage if they start to be able to bring new things onto their balance sheets, if they start to impose costs on businesses that aren't keeping up with new environmental and social and governance norms. So that's that's a that's a cycle. Whether it's fucked up or not, I'm not saying I agree that that's the way things happen. That's just like that is a cycle that's taking place right now in the world. My perspective is that given all of that, the, you know, the, I guess the theory of change um, and, and I don't think that this is exclusive, but where I'm focusing my attention is how do we, given that the, that's what's happening, I believe that that's what's happening, um, how do we insert ourselves so that um, that it's honest, 
right? To the degree possible, that actually engenders a massive transformation of capital and a transference of capital back into living and local um, systems. And that that's actually what takes place instead of the alternate, which is a high risk scenario, which is just sort of like, I, I don't know, sort of like private corporate reserves and greenwashing, right? Which is there's there's a bifurcation. And it's possible that we hold the system accountable and that it becomes true. And what I would say, which is interesting, is many people, and in order to do that, we we have to take responsibility for transforming what profit and capital means in the system. Because as Last Farm said, it, you know, it, if it's just a calculation, capital tries to accumulate to itself, right? So what is capital and how does it accumulate? And what are the rules of that accumulation? Those are the primary questions in my mind. Last farm. Well, I'd like to return to um, to Greg's response to what I had to say. I'd start off by saying um, that the thing that he said doesn't hold water. That we seize the assets of the ultra wealthy and then you to redeploy those assets in a way that's in the common good is what we already do. We just don't do it enough. We already have a progressive taxation system. The state already seizes the assets of the wealthy. Uh, in a variety of different ways, and then deploys it in ways that it thinks are in the common good. And we have virtually everything useful in our life to thank for that process. Everything from the internet to highways, uh, to trains, you know, and so on and so forth. Those things, none of those investments are the maximal way to accumulate profit. And so they had to be done by the state. They could not have been done by capitalists. Capitalists will only pursue the highest profit again. So, you know, the idea that we can't do something that we're already doing effectively doesn't make any sense. All I'm arguing is for an expansion and extension of that process. We should have a much higher inheritance tax, for instance. We should not have a hereditary uh, aristocracy in this country. That is an inherently undemocratic system. We should have a wealth tax. You should not be able to sit on massive amounts of capital that you don't deploy in useful ways. That should be taken by a democratic state, a more democratic state than the one we have, but a state nonetheless and deployed in ways that are useful to everyone. We should not have a country where people are starving and other people have obscene wealth. That's that's indefensibly immoral. And so, yeah, I do at the end of the day, I disagree with Greg. Billionaires are just blood-sucking vampires and the wealth they have is, is undeserved, radically undeserved. Uh, and we will have to overcome their power and resistance in order to build the kind of society that we both want to build. We won't be able to persuade them. We won't be able to, to convince them to be enlightened with their capital. Uh, it will have to be taken through things like inheritance taxes and wealth taxes and things of that nature, uh, and then applied to things like a Green New Deal, um, a state-directed program for change, shifting away from this extractive capitalist system and towards an eco-socialist one. Um, we cannot, I, I hear a tremendous amount of faith in the market, uh, in what Greg is describing. And I have zero faith in the market. The only faith I have in the market is that will, it will always pursue the greatest source of profit that it will maximize profit at any and all cost, whether that's human extinction or anything else. There is no planning in capitalism. Uh, the entire thing is just shooting from the hip and that's how we've ended up here. Um, and so, I, I strongly disagree with this notion that we have to be 
wary of the state's involvement in these kind of things. It's the only way we will survive. And the state is highly imperfect, of course. And that's why a big part of my argument is that we have to deepen our democracy, increase our technocratic capacity. We have to improve all these systems. Our, our state is, uh, is a laughable one in many ways, even by the standards of, of, uh, of other states that currently exist, never mind pie in the sky stuff. I mean, even compared to the technocratic capacity of the Swiss state, uh, the, the United States is laughable. I mean, you know, and I disagree also that the, uh, that the state is incapable of managing complex uh, enterprises. The Swiss rail system is a state-owned enterprise, and it's the best rail system on the planet. It's highly complex. That doesn't, you know, just because our experience is of, at, uh, is of Amtrak, which is, you know, garbage, doesn't mean that the state can't run a train system. It just means that our state's doing a bad job of it. So I think throwing the baby out with the bathwater, saying, well, the state can't actually do anything complex is a huge mistake. That's just looking at it through the lens of the American state, which, as we both agree, has been terribly corrupted and undermined by the forces of capital. So, yeah, we, you know, you don't, the goal is not to have this state in its current form doing all the things I'm describing. It has to be a transformative political and economic process. Last round, let me let me ask you a couple questions. Um, Switzerland is a lot smaller than the United States. Um, what what do you see as kind of the mechanisms of managing complexity of the collective intelligence involved? Um, what is the mix of you know information being you know sensed, processed? Uh, you know, managed usefully, uh, you know, in a highly, you know, in a very, you know, large, highly complex global, you know, US, you know, and global economy. So, 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 so how do you, how do you think about that? Like the, the technocratic aspect that you talk about, like, like where, you know, how are we going to manage all that complexity? Uh, and two, uh, what do you think about Gregory's ideas of kind of changing the definitions of capital so that, you know, the games that people are playing to kind of maximize things in general uh, are actually maximizing a much more holistic uh, sense of what is good in society. Um, well, to respond to the first point, I mean, people always play this game. Any example you bring up, they say, well, that, that's not Texas. That's not America. That's not this and that, whatever. It doesn't make any sense. It, it's a very parochial or provincial way of looking at the world where it's like, Actually, we can hold ourselves to an international standard for these kinds of things. So Switzerland may be smaller than the U.S., but its train system isn't. It's a much more complex, much more advanced, much longer. And it, and furthermore, it's only one example. I mean, I could say the same thing about the French train system, which is a, over a huge country, or the Chinese train system, for that matter, which you know has so much high-speed rail that it, that flights have dramatically reduced within the country and things like that. Or there's I could go on and on with these examples, but. You, can't always play that game of like, well, we're not China, we're not this, we're not that. It's like, at the end of the day, it's a government, and a government can do these things. There's nothing inherent about a government that can't, or in many ways, like some have competencies and other are good companies and bad companies. Competent companies can say the state can't do that because my state doesn't. It, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's not. It's not to me a valid critique of any of that kind of thing. So you know, efficient state-owned enterprises, 
But if you want the most efficient state-owned enterprise on the planet, that would be Saudi Aramco, which is the biggest fossil fuel producer on the planet. So, I mean, if you want an example of a company of a state managing a a highly complex process uh, that deals in in one of the most powerful and important resources, it's not on a the democratic planet, state. Like, no, it's not. But that's not the, the conversation, right? Is like, does a state have that capacity? The Swiss state is a democratic state. The French state is a democratic state. So again, it's like there's always these things where it's like, yeah, it's not exactly our context, but that doesn't matter. It, it, you could say the same thing again for any company. Uh, just how is, as a particular how is private the company. Saudi Aramco? How is the the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia different from Amazon? Like, like, what's the you know? It's a it's a hierarchical structure that manages a bunch of capital um and, and uh, amazon to also, have a military for one right but what i'm saying is it th they're efficient hierarchical non-democratic organizations managing something that's super complex i just think you're you're kind of you're skating on thin, thin ice <laughs> drawing in aramco into the as an analogy of like the state capacity. Why? This is why people are scared of socialism. Because if you want to manage massive complex things, most people believe, whether this is true or not, that if you're going to do that, you're going to need to revert into hierarchical structures to manage the complexity. And therefore- I, mean, I strongly disagree with that for the reason I just described. Switzerland does not- healthcare system isn't like that the canadian is furthermore let's let's do an apples to apples comparison here if let's say you're right let's say that the only way to manage a complex system is through authoritarianism well then i guess the option is between state authoritarianism or capitalist authoritarianism what we have today is capitalist authoritarianism private decision making with no democratic input whatsoever about the allocation of resources and no concern whatsoever for the consequences so it would hardly be worse to have uh, to have a state version of that than a capitalist version of that. That's those are that's sort of like neither here nor there. But the difference is that a state can be democratized, whereas capitalism cannot be. It is inherently undemocratic. You can't how, have how private that, ownership of the means of production. How does that follow? That's not that doesn't follow. There are many companies practicing quite radical democratic governance, worker-owned co-ops. There's some large industrial. So I think. You know what I'm poking at here is I don't think is it a state is it not a state is the is the right framing here it's what is the form of governance that a group of humans are using in order to manage their resources and make decisions is is what's important here and I hear you saying I hear you sort of saying and this is and again I'm poking at this I do not believe that you need to have an authoritarian structure to manage complexity but a lot of people do and a lot of people also a lot of people are scared of socialism because they fear that eventually the way that politics works is people will play political games in order to accumulate power and then they will leverage this the governmental apparatus to impose violence against other people and that that's where things go and i think those are well founded fears and i you know i think that's what i'm poking at here is like how much violence or how much does it cost to impose the vision of the world that you're you know saying starting with the statement 
billionaires are blood-sucking vampires and they deserve to have all of their wealth expropriated and then continuing to point out authoritarian regimes and their ability as states to manage complex systems, I don't think sets up your argument for a lot of people to vote on Twitter about its, you know, success. I I don't know the answer to that last part, but I will say, uh, sorry, my dog is uh, barking like crazy behind me. Um, can I, can I, I will say that? Can I, can I interject here real quick, real quick, just to kind of set you up last time? Sure, uh, can you, in your answer, can you also, are, are there some good examples of well-run state managed, um, systems that have a lot of complexity and are radically democratic? Uh, well, the entire Zapatista area under control, certainly, I mean, they have complex, uh, agricultural systems, governance systems, infrastructural systems, so on and so forth. It's you know, going on 25 years now of success in that regard. And that's, uh, you know, a relatively large territory that's covered by a radical democracy. But I think it's kind of a fake question because radical democracy is violently suppressed by by, the, by state capitalism. So it's you know asking for an example of something that every time it has tried to pop up and 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 manifest itself, it is violently suppressed. And the Zapatistas are the only reason they're one of the very few examples is that they took up arms and managed to defend their radical democracy from a violent state. And that's the same response I have to Greg's point is. You know, the, his question to me was, how much violence would it take to enact my vision? None, because again, as I said, all we would need to do is enact things like estate taxes and wealth taxes and so on and so forth. But I, I would bounce that back to you by saying, how much violence does it take to maintain the current state of inequality? So let's say it did take some amount of violence to enact my worldview. Would that be more violence than it currently takes to enforce the, the dystopian world we live in today? Because everywhere I look, I see horrific state violence intended to enforce capitalist power and inequality. And that extends all around the world from the wars that the, that our imperial country fights all over, bombing millions of innocent people and starving them with embargoes and so on and so forth in order to ensure capitalist hegemony. Uh, you know, it, it, would my vision be more violent than that? I mean, of course, the, my answer would be no. It would be you'd be hard pressed to find a more violent system than the one we have today. And, and my goal, as somebody who believes in a just, humane, and ecological world, would be to make that transition through the peace of electoral politics and things of that nature, and, and movement politics. And, and I believe that is viable because, again, I think history is on my side in that case. We have plenty of examples, things like the civil rights movement, um, various uh, electoral successes all throughout South America recently, so on and so forth, where we're seeing transformation of economies uh, towards eco-socialism through peaceful means. And where we do see violence, it's usually fascist backlash against those peaceful transformations. And that's certainly where, the, where, you know, where we've seen violence flare up. It's not the left, you know, taking up arms against against the wealthy. It's winning free and fair elections, trying to pass laws, and then being faced with military coups, uh, with street violence, with CIA-backed coups, and that sort of thing. That's where the violence comes from. And so I think, you know, this kind of fear-mongering around Cold War propaganda about, like, oh, the left is going to march you off to the gulag, that's just propaganda. It's not reality. The reality is that capitalist violence pervades our society and our world, and that's what drives so much of the violence we see. So my vision is for a peaceful transformation.
product. The the world we have today is the opposite of that. Gregory? Um, I mean, look, there's, I, I feel like this is, I don't know that this is the most fruitful point of conversation. I'm mostly poking at this last farm, not, I, I'm sort of being a devil's advocate here, really more so to try to evolve the conversation a little bit more than, you know, more than anything else. I, I look, I don't think it's fair to say that it's just Cold War propaganda. Um, you know, it is also is completely true what you just said, which is that, you know, fascist reactions and CIA interventions and, you know, um, companies wielding governmental um, power or private paramilitaries have created huge amounts of violence. And and I'm not advocating for the current system to be the one that we're working with. I am trying to sort of like ask that question with a little bit of rigor. And I think it's a place that things tend to sort of like fall down. And I'm not completely, you know, I, I don't feel that that question was answered in a way that's convincing to me personally. Um, but I think we can go back to places where there's agreement, right? So the the question is, I, I, I guess there's some fundamental questions that are really important. Like, do, when do the ends justify the means? Do they ever justify the means? Um, so... So I mean, are we applying that question to to what I'm proposing, which is electoral politics and pressure campaigns run by democratic movements? Because uh, certainly electoral politics is not my utopia, but I don't think that anyone would say it's it's unethical in our current context to engage in electoral politics. I think doing- I've several times in the conversation that that sounds awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> I think so, it's great. right. So I think what you're what you're saying that is kind of it doesn't really apply to what I'm actually proposing. But you proposing. have said several times, I guess what I'm poking at is you have said several times, whatever, you know, we should seize that, w- whatever it takes, you know, so, so, you, so, you've context, it, so, so you've sort of, you're saying two different things. And I think that's where, you know, where I'm trying to get clear is like, where is the line? And this is, you know, from a political ideology perspective, like, where's the line? Uh, you know, where, how big is the tent? <laughs> I guess. Right. And I guess my, my response is that that's context dependent. So for instance, the Zapatistas took up arms against the Mexican state because they felt that their, their life, their society was at risk of extinction after the signing of NAFTA and the violent suppression that they'd had from the Mexican state. I believe that was morally justified in their text, right? That doesn't mean it is morally justified everywhere under any circumstance, but in theirs, it was the right one. It was the right the right approach to take. In our context, we were fortunate to not need be inappropriate and immoral to do that. We can still run candidates in elections and do ballot propositions and so on and so forth. And although it is highly imperfect, it is responsive enough that that is an approach that we can take and win at. So... Yeah, I mean, my my answer to that is it depends. It depends where and under what circumstances. And I would never tisk tisk someone like the Zapatistas uh, for taking up arms and, and using violence to achieve their ends. I think it's absolutely justified in their setting. 
I want to, so, so we probably have about 15 more minutes. And so I, I want to maybe try to channel this back towards ecological regeneration and uh, fair, you know, socioeconomic systems um, and, and maybe jump to a kind of a higher level of, of abstraction. So, you know, and kind of what Gregory was, 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 was suggesting earlier of, okay, if we, if we, for, for a moment, take away this kind of binary of the state or a corporation um, or, you know, whatever other entity, civil society, let's say, and, and just talk about, you know, what kinds of mechanisms do we need? What kind of collective intelligence do we need in order to grow, you know, the things we want to see in the world and decrease the things we don't want to see in the world? Because I can see, you know, a, a socialist state, you know, with a radical democratic process, many of the people not, say, not really caring about uh, ecological issues, right? Um, or I could see, um, you know, of course, what we have now <laughs> with, you know, the current capitalist system that, you know, externalizes most of the costs and Gregory's proposal to figure out, re, you know, uh, recalibrate the system to internalize those costs. And so do you guys see what I'm getting at? Like, like in a more kind of, you know, layer of abstraction, you know, what kind of decision-making mechanisms do we need to basically internalize these externalities and to channel, you know, our, our lives towards the good, you know, towards, towards what we want in society and, and, and the long-term sustainability of society. If you, I'd love to answer this. I think this is an area of significant agreement. And I think where we're, where we agree is that incentives are really important and incentives do a great deal to determine outcomes. Um, and so I agree with what you said, Jason, simply being a socialist society is not enough to guarantee uh, ecological conservation or regeneration. Um, there will still be an incentive just under socialism as such uh, to exploit instead of the benefit for the capitalist class. And while I think that's a more ethical form of exploitation, it is exploitation nonetheless, and that's not something we want to be doing. So we do need to bake in the eco to the socialism, right? It has to be fundamental to the project. And so that's where, you know, that's the limits of, uh, as I talked about in our last podcast, that's the limits of the democratic process, right? We cannot allow democracy to decide that the majority is allowed to oppress the minority. There has to be some sort of constitutional protection for that. And that certainly extends to ecology as well, because we all breathe the same air, drink the same water, so on and so forth. So I think what we probably agree is that... I think we're, but if we're talking about a highly complex cybernetic system, um, how do we, besides just making mandates or saying you can't do this or it needs to be written in the constitution, like in terms of actual the mechanism of intelligence itself. And I think this is maybe where Gregory, even in your eco-socialist framework, might have something to offer, might have a perspective to offer. And Gregory, you can tell me if you if you agree that we're past the point where we can just have good intentions, right? Or we can just mandate things. It, you know, it, we need some kind of evolutionary way forward um yeah so i mean i, I guess did mandate with intention i'm a little confused there those seem to be 
mandates versus intention, good intentions. Yeah, well, you're, you're saying you're talking about the harm principle. Um, of course, determining who is harmed in what ways uh, requires a, a, a mm-hmm. quite a bit of collective intelligence, right? And and consensus on on how yes, yes. the Amazon is being destroyed and is ruining the hydrological cycle of the whole, whole world. So, mm-hmm. so, so that, that already involves a lot of science, but then that also involves local livelihoods in the Amazon. And, you know, are we in order to... Mm-hmm you know, implement some idea. Are we, you know, it, it starts to be, you know, are, are we basically undermining local livelihood? So, so it starts becoming incredibly complex. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I wonder if there's an opportunity, even if you're not agreeing about billionaires or whatever, there's an opportunity for, you know, kind of this more kind of evolutionary collective intelligence that Gregory, I think has been thinking about for a long time to, to be infused in, in how you're thinking about, politics and, and so i'm just kind of throwing that out there see what you guys think i mean that certainly my opinion is that the core capacity that needs to be um achieved and again i'm going to bring it back i think i've said this several times is specifically the governance of the translation between non-fungible and fungible or to use marx's language intrinsic or use value and exchange value that process is going to be contextual and it needs to be able to incorporate in dynamic in scientific information about ecological and social health as well as class concerns and that specific tool, that toolkit, you know, involves whether it's used in a to to sort of like manage within a commons framework, which is neither corporate nor state, or it is managed in a liberal corporate state like we have now, or a eco-socialist state like Last Farm is proposing, that core capability has to exist for us to survive as a species, essentially. And we have to have that capability and be able to monitor and incentivize ecological health to be sort of like paramount or one of the paramount things that's being optimized for in any of those essentially translation, right? Because you're always going to have people entering and exiting systems. You're always, you know, you're going to have this sort of like flow of capital, of resources, of, um, information and how that gets translated and engaged and then rooted into a specific context to me that's the that's the core you know i'm very fixated on that that's that's the infrastructure level work we try to engage with at region network and i think it's incredibly important (laughs) in in if an eco-socialist vision is going to be actualized i don't think it could happen without something like that existing and being widely accessible well understood and implemented uh, kind of across the board i think there's a lot of agreement there i think the difference is that i i envision that kind of institutional um 
capacity existing within the state, much as we have it today. So for instance, as someone who lives on the land and does a lot of growing of plants, I lean very heavily on, on the local USDA agricultural extension, which is an incredibly useful repository of knowledge and resources. The only problem with it is that it's under-resourced and underfunded. And so I envision institutions like that, things, or even like 4-H, which is also a you know, is the youth version of that also administered by the federal government. Um, those things need to become a lot bigger and a lot better. Uh, and they need to incorporate a lot more different types of insta- of information um, and, and have a lot more resources to offer. Right now, we have this kind of patchwork of corporate, you know, corporate nonprofit and uh, state capacity that, that kind of does those things. In a, in a pretty mediocre way, um, as someone who's who's just you know starting a, a farming operation, it's it's a pretty messy and confusing patchwork of things, and you really don't get exactly what you want most of the time. That could be done a lot more efficiently by a more centralized state operation. If the agricultural extension just had those capacities, the state university had that capacity, that would be a lot easier and a lot better. But I agree, certainly, that technocratic capacity is vital, um, and so that's why. In the course of transforming our economy and transforming our politics, we have to be absolutely fighting for resources um, for what, you know, I guess what we're all broadly calling regenerative agriculture and building the capacity and knowledge for those types of things and for building a regenerative economy. So that, that we need to be, that's kind of an internal thing though, right? Like that's within the people who are trying to make that kind of change, we need to make sure that that perspective is at the forefront because there are competing visions for what the future would look like, uh, you know, in a post-capitalist world. And so that's like within the the world of people who want to make that change, um, we need to be fighting for, for, for an ecological vision. System funding and institution building that it deserves uh, in the course of making that change. Okay, we, we you cut out a little bit near the end last farm, but I think I think we 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 mostly got what you were saying. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I, I this is now this is actually a point where I wish AC was part of the conversation, representing a localist perspective. Because now you know I, I kind of set it up this way of saying what is the kind of the mechanism of collective intelligence right? Implying this kind of technocratic management of the economy. But then, you know, that's, you know, oftentimes I think uh, at least how, you know, it's properly perceived in contrast or in conflict with a more localist vision of, you know, basically not wanting to be micromanaged by say state agencies uh, who aren't connected to kind of local context. And, and I know, Gregory, this also relates to what you're think, you've thought a lot about is this translation between fungibility and non-fungibility, right? And I think we had a conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger, and I don't think we really got to the bottom of that. It was left as an open question of how does that how does that work? But I, I, you know... Yeah, he brought up a lot of the right constraints. Yeah. Um, I... I you know, it's like, it's going to be one of those, it's, it's a complex challenge. And I happen to believe that it, that, that, that administrative capability needs to be localized. Um, look, USDA, NRCS is great. One of the great success stories of the U S government is our conservation. soil conservation districts and, and NRCS is one of the coolest 
<laughs> group of humans doing great work across the country. We've worked quite a bit actually on developing tech for things that are happening there with soil health monitoring and claims. Um, and I think it's also true that it's under resources, under resourced. And I think it's also my perspective is, you know, I, and this is, these are challenging. These are challenging questions to get right. To what degree do you centralize that? To what degree do you decentralize it? You know, how do you create a clearinghouse system that does unify or a federated system? All in all, these are questions that the United States has evolved a set of answers to that, you know, in many ways suck a lot less than other places. You know, if if we sort of if we agree, like, look, I agree, we need to not be politically, we need to not be apolitical, we need to unify and engage with politics in order to um, reclaim the positive role of the government in our life. 100% in agreement with that. Um, I think, you know, I, I guess my argument argument with you last farm has mostly been an attempt to try to just sort of like roughen some of the or soften some of the <laughs> hard edges that I think are going to get in the way of that but side note maybe that's a strategy conversation I agree we need to like engage and if there are well resourced well resourced extension agents for the USDA awesome um however I think it's also important to understand that the confusing patchwork of systems was consciously evolved to have a balance of different powers. Now, whether or not that's the right balance, like, hey, let's have that conversation. But every time we take a step towards centralizing power into a sort of like central technocratic problem or uh, technocratic apparatus, we raise the risk that it's going to be captured by interests as we've seen has already happened with any anywhere like the USDA for instance th there are some good departments like the NRCS and extension agencies um and and there's a huge amount the USDA is also subsidizing monoculture extractive agriculture that's destroying our country's soils and you know um subsidizing fossil f fertilizer and herbicide and GMOs and all sorts of other crazy shit right because it's been captured and that's you know, and and yes, we need to fight and sort of reclaim that, and we need to start to tweak it to make it less capture, uh, more capture resistant. Um, and at the same time, I think, from my perspective, there's sort of checks and balances. And I believe, you know, I guess this is like the anarchist in me, but I I think there needs to be local enterprise ecologies, systems of businesses, cooperatives civic organizations, churches, local civic society needs to have the full tools to make decisions about their um, ecological resilience and to generate wealth based on their ability to steward their ecological commonwealth. And if it's fully wrapped into the state, I don't see that going super well. That doesn't mean that the state shouldn't be involved in it as a part. And okay now, now gregory's uh you're starting to cut out a little bit 
I think, I think we got where you were going, though. So now I think we've, <laughs> you were both cut off. Uh, Last farm, do you want to pick up? Um, sure. Probably well, I, I, yeah. five minutes. So, so sure. Yeah. yeah, the I think we're well. I can only speak for myself. These are the the challenges of being a rural person is getting uh, decent communication infrastructure. Or something I wish the state would step in and fix. Uh, but I certainly agree with Greg. The state would absolutely should not run everything. And that my proposal is absolutely not that um, the types of uh, of organizations that he's describing shouldn't exist. Where I disagree is that it sounds like, and I'm not entirely sure this is the case, that he thinks they should have a degree of decision-making power that um, that I don't agree with. That I don't think that um, that those things should be able to assert authority and power over the lives of people who don't have democratic input over their operation. And so, whether it's the state or a worker cooperative or or a local civic organization, whatever it is. I agree that the most important piece is how democratic is it, right? Like it's not about the institution itself. It's about how responsive it is to uh, the needs of the people affected by its decisions. And so I certainly agree those institutions should, should exist and they should be sources of information and they should be uh, part of the, the democratic process 100%, but they should not be able to make decisions for people. That should be up to a truly democratic part, uh, body and our goal should be to make the state as democratic as possible and thus responsive to those things. So it, it's not about everything should be under state ownership or state control. Absolutely not. That wouldn't make any sense for a million different reasons. But should we strive to have the most democratic state possible? Yes. And should that state be in the position of protecting us and ensuring that our rights are not violated by other institutions? Yes, as well. So ultimate authority should lie with the state because the state should be a democratic expression of our rights and needs. Now, that doesn't mean that's what it is today or that's what it's always been historically. It means that's what we should shoot for. That's the transformation we should aim for. So uh, do I think that the state should be the only source of information in my area? Absolutely not. But I think it should set the bar, right? There should be an outstanding state-run resource uh, here that provides virtually everything people need. And if there are additional things on top of that for you know new farmers like myself, then awesome. You know, but we shouldn't need to rely on private interests for our basic subsistence. Gregory, do you want to maybe make a uh, kind of a final response? And last farmer, if you have anything. Uh, left you want to say as well and we can wrap it up sure um i don't see the state doing most of the things that it should do or needs to do or in the current political climate being responsive enough to what the people and the planet need in order to create a new regenerative economy. Um, you don't see it they doing now and you don't see the potential for it to do in the future. I totally see it, the potential. I think it follows. I think, as I was explaining, I think the state, like regulation and legislation follows grassroots trends, engagement, and uh, cultural movements it doesn't start with the state it 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 responds and as last farm was saying i agree our state is responsible 
responsive enough, we should fully engage with that and encode the state and upgrade the state to be responsive and engaged and supportive of what needs to happen and 100% in agreement that the state can and should run certain elements. Like the post office is awesome. <laughs> USPS is amazing. Um, and, you know, we should fortify and, and you know, and to some degree expand those things. And I'm definitely also, you know, don't, that's true. And it's also true that we need to build completely grassroots, non-state institutions and action. Um, I agree they should be as democratic as possible um, and maybe even more radically democratic, which is the exciting thing. And um, and I, I will say I sort of I'm, I'm also leaving this. I think one of the big disagreements to just flag is I don't think all all um, billionaires are vampires, nor do I think that all vampires are billionaires. <laughs> Um, but great progressive wealth tax and inheritance taxes, that all sounds fine. Um, I think we could dampen down the rhetoric a little bit and actually find common ground because my sense is in a lot of cases, um, even those folks would like to strengthen their local communities, the government, um, and definitely ecosystems. And I think if we're going to get out of this well, um, the like amping up the rhetoric in order to polarize a political movement, that makes me very wary. Um, I think there's a lot of agreement here and and maybe some some disagreement, especially in how in the language or how we talk about this. Um, but yeah, I'm grateful for the conversation and um you know, if there's local uh, political actions to take, I'm totally uh, open to uh, hearing about them and, and considering them. Last farm, any last words? Sure. Well, I, I will say that um, I prepared this whole critique of carbon credits that I didn't get to use. So I'm disappointed that we didn't get to that subject. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a lot of agreement and disagreement as well here. And we're obviously striving for very similar goals. I'm very sympathetic to to anybody who is trying to work towards a just ecological society by whatever their preferred methodology is. Um, you know, that said, I do think though it is very important to draw a line. And I think the the evidence actually indicates that polarization is very important to motivating people. And for you know, the the most obvious example, of course, is the uh, surprising success of the two Bernie Sanders campaigns. Right, like there were so many things that had to be overcome there just in order to get as far as it did. And it largely worked because it, it galvanized anger against the billionaire class, which is widespread um, and, and, you know, cuts across uh, class race and, and gender lines and all kinds of geographic things and that sort of thing. The middle class is furious, the billionaire class, the working class is furious, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even people who earn high incomes, but don't wield capital the way they do feel disaffected. Um, and so I think that kind of polarization is important. It's also, it also has the benefit of being true. Um, and so I don't think that the, the goal should be to tone things down. I think it should be to tell it like it is. And what it is, is a really 
dramatic and grotesque level of inequality that is you know, running our society to the brink of collapse, both ecologically and socially. And I don't think we should be shy about that. I think we need to call it like it is and say that the solution um, is a dramatic transformation of the state and our economy and our relationship to ecology. And for me, that solution is eco-socialism. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I um, found this interesting. Of course, there's a lot of threads that could could perhaps be picked up in the future. Um, you know, just m- my cards on the table. I I have a kind of a localist bias, but I'm I'm definitely a theory of change pluralist, and so I delight in getting you know people like you who have a lot of common ground and some stark differences uh, together to you know because I, I see you two representing two theories of change, and I think both of these theories of change you know are going to get purchase. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how they play off of one in, one another, how they co-inform each other uh, in the future. And so I just want to thank both of you. Um, I enjoyed this. And take care, everyone. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Last Farm. Yeah, thank you both. Jason, I hear the delight in your voice at this intellectual jousting. So happy to provide entertainment for you. And thanks for the conversation, Greg. Mm-hmm.